This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Well, thank you, church. I would invite you to turn to the book of Acts, if you would. And if you're able and you would choose to do so, I would ask you if you would stand with me as I read these first nine verses out of chapter 17 as it takes up from the story where Paul and Silas on the second missionary journey have made their way to the city of Thessalonica. You may have that in a subheading in your Bible or on your app. Verse 1 states this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, man, I said that so well at the 8 o'clock service. Let's do do that again. Now when they passed through that first city and then Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, three, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, of course, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. What an incredible story it is. This has actually a verse in it. You know, I like to highlight certain verses, and this is one of those verses that gets highlighted in just about every copy of God's Word that I have. It's right in the midst of this passage. It's one that, that just uh, it makes, it gives me goosebumps every time I read it, and I know that that may sound a little too emotional for some of you, but it really does as I think about this reality. As you know, and uh, I've been here since 1994, when I first came to First Baptist Church, I was a student pastor, and initially about uh, two years into my service here as a youth pastor, we uh, took the student me- students, the teenagers, the high school juniors and seniors on a mission trip. Now, I am a big proponent of short-term mission trips because I believe, especially for teenagers that when, and, and college students, when they go on these short-term trips, God does something. He, he kind of breaks them out of their normal structure and, and, and gives them the ability to hear his voice in ways perhaps they hadn't heard earlier. We've had students surrender to full-time ministry after going on such trips, others who are faithfully serving in the church here and other churches around due to such uh, trips that we have taken. This was back in the late 90s, and at that time, our church owned a 15-passenger van. I don't know if you've ever taken a long journey in a 15-passenger van, but we're going to start a support group for uh, that that group of us at some level. Uh, It's probably the most dangerous vehicle on the road, but nonetheless, we thought it was safe at the time, so we load 10 to 12 teenagers uh, and plus a couple of adults, and I had the great joy and the privilege of driving the group. So uh, parents, uh, some of you parents are still here, and, and you're looking at me going, I can't believe we trusted you to do that, but you did. And so we got in our little church van, and we, 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 uh, we were packed in, and just because a church van says it's a 15-passenger van, you know when you put 12 people in it, it's full, or 10 people in it, it's full. We didn't have room for luggage, so we borrowed a church member's uh, trailer, 
uh, we, were, we were counting every penny, so we couldn't even rent like a U-Haul at the time. At least I didn't have it in my budget. So we borrowed a trailer that was from one of our, our church members, one of our deacons who is still an active and faithful member here, and I won't call his name out, but Mike Swartz loaned us this. And so what we did <laughs> is, is, is I hooked it up to the back of that van, and, and we're heading to Shreveport, Louisiana, right? So Shreveport, Louisiana, and, and, and I am so thankful that Mike loaned us that trailer, but I discovered on the interstate, don't know if Mike knew this at the time, but once you get over 50 miles an hour, that, that trailer does this. And I'm looking, I'm driving with one eye looking forward and one eye in the mirror at that trailer, hoping it stays attached to the van. We made it safely, though. See, it's fun to tell the story now. We didn't tell this at the time. But we made it there to Shreveport, Louisiana, and we served on a mission team. I took teenagers with us. Some of you are here today, and you're having some flashbacks to that. Um, Shreveport, Louisiana was that year. Another year, we went to Mobile, Alabama. Another year, we went to Birmingham, Alabama. I think we did that twice. And then once, we went to West Memphis, Arkansas. And let me just say, uh, you're, you're picturing this, right? West Memphis, Arkansas, Shreveport, Mobile, Birmingham. There is no better place in the world to be putting shingles on a roof in the middle of July than those cities. That was our mission trip. We're shingling roofs, we're putting uh, siding up on homes, we're painting homes, and we're doing this in areas of these cities that are um, suffering from economic issues. They're maybe inner city homes, uh, they're not the best homes, they don't have the finances to rebuild or to fix or repair. And so here come these busloads of teenagers from all around, really all around America, and uh, so what happens on those teams is you have somebody on the team who's an adult that knows what they're doing. That would not have been me. I was the adult on the team that just knew the teenagers. So you got an adult on the team that knows students. You have an adult that knows how to do the work. And then you have a conglomeration of teenagers on teams. They're not all from our church. We all mix it up. And we have about eight to ten students who are doing work on these homes. And each student pays at that time, late 90s, about $250 a piece for the privilege of getting on someone else's roof and putting shingles on their house. And let me just say, the girls always did the best job. Just want you to know, there's something about the meticulousness of putting on shingles and getting them lined up that some of us as, as guys just didn't do it as well. And so they kept asking the girls to go back and make sure they were managing the, the guys on the team. We would shingle those homes all day long. We'd paint those homes all day long. We'd go back to our, oh, our sleeping arrangements were air mattresses and public schools. Most of the schools were safe. We, I told the kids to ignore the bullet holes in the windows. Um, we didn't tell the parents that at the time either. We slept on air mattresses, it was safe. The city was so glad we were there. The impact in the community was, was intentional and severe. It was a program called World Changers. World Changers at the time was, was under an agency that we had a Southern Baptist called the Baptist Brotherhood. It doesn't exist anymore. It eventually then moved over to the North American Mission Board. And now World Changers is an independent organization, I think, based out of Panama City. It's been rebooted. And I know uh, I was seeing Brandon Phillips. I'm seeing uh, Phil and Mary here. Brandon uh, grew up in this church serving as a student minister in the Panhandle. He just got back from another World Changers trip in the Panhandle. They're doing the same work. And, and I'm excited about what those kind of mission trips because they are impactful, not just to the people who live in those homes. Let me just say that Chip and Joanna Gaines can do a great thing, and the hometown folks in Mississippi do wonderful work, and the Property Brothers probably do great stuff. But let me just tell you, the impact in the homes from real people doing real work in real homes with no TV cameras is life-changing. 
I can't tell you how many people would come up to our students and say, how much are they paying you to do this? To which the students would say, well, actually, we pay $250 for the privilege of doing this. And at that moment, the door is wide open because that is crazy. You paid so that you could work. Well, yeah, isn't that how it's always supposed to be? But the world changer's title was intentional because there was this moment of if we can impact the lives of these families and these homes, we have the opportunity to change their world, at least for a season. And if we have the opportunity to have intentional gospel conversations, and let me just tell you something, there's something about a 16-year-old student talking to a 75-year-old adult who doesn't know Jesus and that student leading that person to Jesus Christ in a personal relationship. That is world-changing. That is life-changing. And not just for the senior adult that lives in that home, but for the teenager that thought, I, I just thought this was in movies. I didn't know this really happened. Let me just say, those kind of mission trips, I love youth camps and I love events and Disciple Nows. Those blow all that away because of the impact on the students. World changers. Years ago, Dr. Richard Ross, who is a professor at Southwestern Seminary, uh, uh, he's been serving there for many years now, but at this time I was, he was working with Lifeway. And I heard him do a, do a speech back in the late 90s, and he was talking about the change that was coming at the, at the turn of the millennium. Now, I know we're 21 years after the year 2000. It's hard to imagine. But at that moment, he was saying when the year 2000 hits, as we move forward looking at statistical analysis and generational de- definitions, we're going to see in America a, a, an, an increase in desires and, and, uh, and a draw towards spirituality towards the end of the, of the century. We're in the end of the millennium. But then he said this, but don't confuse that with an interest in Christianity. It's just an interest in spiritual things, new age movement, this, that, and the other. Well, he proved to be right. We saw that taking place. But he also said this about generational divides, and it's been echoed through others who have done this very similar analysis over the last 20 years. He says there is a generation, uh, and maybe you call it the boomers or maybe even the builders, or the, that was very committed to their local community and their local churches. And, and from a younger generation's perspective, This is not good or bad or right or wrong, I'm just telling you perspective. Their parents and grandparents were committed to an institution, the institution of church. It's just what we always do. We always give, we always go. But the next generation's coming would push against that and have no allegiance nor alliance to an institution of church, even if they grew up in that church and then left. But here's what was discovered. That the younger generations, while they might not be all in towards an institution, they would be all in towards a movement that made a difference. Whether that's digging wells in Africa, or whether that's helping orphans in Haiti, or whether that's doing some school drive to help those in a small community, or even, go figure, putting shingles on a roof in the, in the middle of summer in Birmingham, Alabama. And, and, and you look at that and you think, well, there, there's some truth to that. Because who doesn't want to be a part of something that makes a real difference? And who doesn't want to be a part of something that makes a difference that's visible and, and, and noticeable? You know, the Christian journey is sometimes a bit of a challenge. There, there, there's a whole lot of pastors I know that, that love to mow their own lawns. We talk about this. We talk about a lot of things, but that's just one thing we have talked about. Do you know why pastors like to mow their lawns? Not because they really love yard work. Because it may be the one thing they get to do all week where they see a tangible result for the effort put in. I start here and the yard is not mowed and I finish here and now the yard is mowed and I go, hmm, 
But you don't always see that in church because it's a longer journey. You don't always see the change taking place in the lives of individuals. You witness to somebody when they're 12 and they get saved when they're 20. But that witness at 12 was essential to the life change at 20. But you don't see it for a long time, right? Changing the world, that's what I want to be a part of. Not just a, not just a mission trip, not just getting on a roof and putting down shingles. I really don't want to do that. But I do want to be a part of something that is amazing and life-changing and world-changing. And I want to say, Lord, do it again. As I read this passage in the book of Acts, I read about Paul and Silas, and I know that Luke and Timothy are there with him on this second missionary journey. We saw previously that, that uh, uh, Lydia, this, this uh, wealthy woman, came to know the Lord. We saw a slave girl that came to know the Lord. We saw a jailer in Philippi that came to know Christ through the power of the gospel and the good news. And now we see the next part of the journey, the next city, the next place that they go to. They have been released from this jail, and they are now in Thessalonica, and they go into the city and they do what they have done in every place they go. If there is a synagogue, they go into the synagogue, and on the Sabbath days, they open what we would say is the Old Testament and the law and the Torah, and they start teaching from Torah, and they start explaining all these messianic prophecies that all the Jews in the city have grown up memorizing and listening to and hearing their rabbis speak of have come to fruition in the birth of this one named Jesus. And so they're expressing to them that the Christ has come. And as it says, some heard and their ears were open and their eyes were open and they said, yes, Jesus, and they became children of God and they became brothers and sisters in Christ. And then some outside of the, of the Jewish faith, some of those who were Greeks and the pagan world who were God-fearers surrendered their lives to Christ. And so what happens in Thessalonica is amazing. A church is born. And, and, and I love the New Testament perspective that you never see a church smaller than a city. You know, we'll have churches on every block but the good news is that, that in, in the united church of understanding what Christ is doing, we truly are working together. And in Thessalonica, a church was launched right here at this moment. You see later on letters written by Paul to that church. But they're life-changing. In fact, it's a world-changing moment taking place here. But I want you to consider, and I'm going to be brief on this this morning. I know you're saying right. I get it. You don't believe me when I say that. But believe this. There are some things we need to consider when it, when it comes to being world changers. First off, changing the world does not require our creativity. Now, I'm all for creativity. I love the creatives. I love art. I love music. I think that God, the creator, has given his image bearers the ability to be creative. And I think we should use our creative abilities for the glory of God in whatever aspect or place that may be. The fact of the matter is that we know there are many image bearers of God on the planet today and throughout history who did not use their gifts for the glory of God. But creativity is a gift, but it is not required to change the world. We live in an era with much change and advancement going on. It was just a few weeks ago, uh, over the last few weeks, that we saw two individuals that have more money than all of us combined many, many times over, built rocket ships and flew to space. Now let me just say, back in the early 1960s, right, when President Kennedy stood up and gave a speech, and he, during, the, during the, 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 the peak of the Cold War and the, and, the, and the space race and all of that is happening, President Kennedy made that speech that said by the end of the decade, by the end of the 1960s, we as a nation, the United States, would put a man on the moon. It was a race. It was more important than winning gold medals at the Olympics. And the ones that were probably as surprised as anybody who heard the president make that promise 
were the men and women, the known ones and the hidden figures that all worked at NASA going, oh, that's us. Now the clock is ticking and we've got to figure out how to do this. And it really was amazing that what was unheard of in the early 60s happened in the late 60s and all of a sudden Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong became household names as well as the rest of the Apollo astronauts and all those that were in that, in that network of, of, of Apollo and Gemini and Mercury and all of those. And we had men walking on the moon. Now, I know some of you don't believe it happened. I know you think it took place in a, in a hangar in Arizona. But nonetheless, I'm going to believe it happened. But to think that at some point in our lifetime after that moment, beyond, you know, Buck Rogers science fiction and everything else, that we would actually see some of those images from popular science come to fruition where you get on a space plane and you can take off and, and, and be in space for even just a few moments. Richard Branson, founder of, the, of Virgin, Virgin Atlantic, became Virgin Galactic, and there he goes to outer space, or at least to the edge of it. And then Jeff Bezos, thanks to yours and my purchasing items from Amazon, we bought a rocket, apparently, and we sent Jeff and his brother and two other people to the edge of space. And now we're looking at, what does that mean? I don't know what that means, but I will promise you this, in the next 20 years, it'll be much more than what we just saw. That we can't really fathom that. How creative. How amazing. But that's also proof that creativity can lead you to do a lot of things, but not necessarily all the God things that are needed to be done. Some people think about changing the world. Well, that's going to be a world-changing incident. It already has been. And we don't really know what that's going to look like. But there are those in the room, those on TV, watching on, online or on television, wherever you're viewing us this morning, that are thinking things like, well, I can't be a world-changer because I'm not that gifted. I'm not that intelligent. I don't have billions of dollars at my disposal. And I'm not that creative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let me remind you of what was happening in Acts. Paul and Silas enter the city and do what they always do. Not very creative if you're doing the same thing in every city. They preach the same message, different people group, same message, nothing changes. They're not coming into Thessalonica with, hey, when we were in Philippi, it didn't really work, so let's go to Thessalonica, let's get a worship band to open for us, maybe some lights and a smoke machine, and if we give away some t-shirts and some really cool lanyards, maybe more will come. No, what they did is they walked into the city just like they'd walked in the previous city with the very same message, and really not very creative, I must say. But God did what God does. The second thing we need to remember is not only is God not requiring us to be super creative to change the world, secondly, changing the world does not require eloquence of speech. A person who is good at public speaking can influence many people. It bodes well for politicians. It's a necessity for stand-up comedians. And in the age of celebrity pastors, Sometimes the ability to speak well in a public setting supersedes the ability to have morals and proper doctrine. But that's not what God necessarily needs to change the world. Moses in the Old Testament, by his own admission and through the writings of the, in, in the book there of Exodus, had a speech impediment. Some theologians say that he was a severe stutterer. We don't know exactly what his speech impediment was, but we do know this, that he pulled out that I can't speak very well card 
when called by God to go back to Egypt, he said, I'm not well uh, spoken. I, 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 I don't, you know, and he's given all the excuses. And God says, that's all right. You're the one, but I'll bring Aaron along with you and he'll be your voice. Oh, you know Moses didn't want to hear that. Moses was impactful and a world changer. Then you think about Paul. Paul, we're reading about Paul. And I think sometimes in our, in our paintings, in our imagery, in our mind, in our imagination, we picture Paul as this, you know, this, this, this well-spoken, uh, great, strong voice. You know, likely not by his own definition of who he is. He wrote to the church in Corinth in his second letter there. He said that he was not a polished speaker. Meaning he was a very good writer, but he didn't speak as well as he wrote. And he was talked of in certain areas as not, not well-spoken uh, and not necessarily the greatest expositor from a microphone, if that would be the case, or from a pulpit. But yet he, he always preached the word of God. In fact, there is this account in Acts chapter 20, we'll get to it in a few weeks, where there's a man named Eutychus. Maybe you remember the Eutychus story. Eutychus, if there's one person in Scripture, you're going, man, I just wish there was somebody in the Bible I could relate to and I could understand, I'm going to give you Eutychus. Because Eutychus went to church and the sermon was so boring he fell asleep. And now you're going, oh yeah, I get that. All right. Paul is preaching and apparently is so boring. Maybe Eutychus had a long night, I don't know. But he fell out, Eutychus fell out the window fell asleep, fell out a window, and died. Looking in the balcony, hang tight, guys. <laughs> the good news was that God gave Paul the ability, God healed him and brought him back to life. It was an amazing story. It's kind of a funny story, but it's also one going, well, man, mate, Paul's putting him to sleep. Changing the world does not require you to be the most eloquent speaker. So apparently turning the world upside down does not mean you have to, to do that. And let me go back. If you're looking for the verse that I love, that I highlight, I'll read it to you just one more time. It's a verse six. It says, when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I don't know why that gets me. Every time I read that, I kind of get goosebumps. I'm thinking... Now, we don't really have epitaphs on tombstones anymore. We usually just have dates and dashes and images. But if you're going to put an epitaph, how cool would that be? Here lies one who turned the world upside down for the sake of Christ. I want to be that guy. And maybe it isn't so much as turning the world upside down. Maybe Paul and Silas could be better defined as those that came in, preached the gospel, and set the world right side up. As those who heard, heard the truth for the first time. Changing the world doesn't mean you have to be really creative. Changing the world doesn't mean you have to be the, the most eloquent. And changing the world does not require an extroverted personality. Now, we, we're all into personality profiles and personalities and understanding this. But let me help you understand this. Whether you are an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're one that loves being around others and are most comfortable in a party, or one that loves being in a small group, or if you had your preference, would be in a group of one. God will use that. See, I learned this from Robert Lewis, who is the pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, many years ago. He said this, and this, it kind of hit me at first. I'm like, I don't know if I believe that. And yet, the more I read, the more I prayed through it, the more I looked at what, what he was referencing, I said, okay, I think he's right on. 
He said this, there's no such thing as a bad personality. Now, there are people that have personalities that get on your nerves, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have a bad personality. That just means they get on your nerves. And I'm not talking, being a jerk is not a personality. I'm talking extrovert or introvert and all the intricacies within. See, God gives everybody a spiritual gift at the moment of new birth and salvation. You get a gift from the Spirit of God. And the spiritual gifts are delineated in different passages in the New Testament. But every image bearer of God is given by him, I believe, a unique personality designed eventually, if they would yet surrender to him, to honor God. So whether you're an extrovert or an introvert or somewhere in between, wherever you are on the disc profile, whatever your uh, Myers-Briggs says or whatever other things that you're doing to try to figure out who you are, God designed you strategically and intentionally for his glory. For his glory. I know some great pastors even in our own city Godly men of sister churches that are in our network, men of, who pastor churches larger than ours, much larger, men who pastor churches smaller than ours. I know some of them that, 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 that would shock you if you've ever heard them preached and watched them stomp and heard them pound on the pulpit to realize that they are only that extroverted. I love that you just did that, that, that sign language with your foot. I saw that out of the back of my eye. Um, they are only that demonstrative behind the pulpit. And they are the most introverted, quiet men otherwise. I've been in pastoral gatherings and meetings where they're in the room, but you don't notice them because they're in the back just drinking their coffee. Then there are guys like me, but that's a different story. God will use your personality and your giftedness because he's the one that gave it to you. And I think if at some point, if some point, if if we could recognize that there is a need for every type of personality within the church family, you will recognize that you truly are needed. I know you've already read all those verses about the body of Christ and some of the hands and some of the feet and some of the eyes, but I don't know that you get it this way. I think you need to understand that you as a Christian bring your giftedness to the table, your bent, your interests, your wiring, your personality, your voice to the body, and for the glory of God, He can and will use you if you will cease pretending that you need to be like some other Christian to be used by God. Isn't that crazy? We look at other Christians and go, if I could just speak like them, if I could just put an Instagram profile up like that, if I could just write like that, if I could just sing like them, if I could just do what they do, then I would be of use to the kingdom of God. And the enemy has infiltrated the church and said, we're going to create a comparative analysis to, to just destruct the individual within the family to say, you don't matter because you're not as good as X, Y, or Z, those people in those places. And I think that's impacting the church in so many ways. So let me tell you, if you want to change the world, you don't have to be the most eloquent, you don't have to be uh, the most creative, and you don't have to have an extroverted personality. But what you do need to have is the willingness to surrender and say, all to you, Jesus, and all for you. Changing the world is part of the commission God has given each and every one of us. We don't get to opt out. We don't get to set it out. As redeemed children of God, we are part of a family that lives on purpose, serves intentionally, encounters strategically, and loves purely. And I know that sounds great, would look good on a poster somewhere, but it is fruitless if it's just words on a piece of paper. 
but that is what we must be, that is what we are supposed to be, and yet the enemy convinces us that we are little more than unnamed extras in a crowd scene in a bad B movie that went straight to streaming, rather than essential members of his family where he is the main character, and he is the star, and he is the director, and he is the writer, and yet we matter enough to him that today we remembered what he's done for us, and every day we must. I know I've read it twice, let's read it three times. Verse five, the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. You know why they said there's another king named Jesus? Because there's another king named Jesus. In fact, he's more than just another king. He's king of kings. He's a sovereign lord. And if we're wise enough to recognize he must be our lord of lords, then he becomes our king, or he is who he has always said he is. But how amazing for us to be called the ones who turned the world upside down. Not by human ingenuity, not by eloquence of speech, not by extroverted personality traits or any other such things that would seem to be required for such a result. But only through the power of God who provides the message, gives us the mission, presents the truth clearly, and supersedes any human personality or giftedness. The saved person is a result of someone turning the world upside down. Last Friday, we hosted the Fellowship of Christian Athletes kickoff event here at First Baptist. We had Mo Williams, who's the chaplain for the Jacksonville Jaguars, as our guest speaker. Mo played college ball at University of Michigan, played high school ball in Detroit, grew up there. But he shared his story on Friday night, and he shared that he did not grow up in a church family. He did not grow up in a Christian environment. He did not know Christ, but there was a player on his high school team who became a Christian and everything changed. They noticed the difference in the locker room. He noticed the difference when he was on the field. His coaches were so frightened because the guy became a Christian thinking that because he's a Christian, he'll be a wimp on the football field. They weren't too excited about it. But this dear friend of his that was in high school dared to ask Mo, Mo Williams, to go to church with him. Mo said he was searching, he was trying to figure out what to do, who God was, and he had a lot of questions. And his friend's name is Larry. So get this, Larry invited Mo to church. <laughs> I'm waiting for Curly to show up and preach the sermon. That was awesome. But Larry told Maurice Williams the truth. And he told Maurice, he said, man, you in those uncertain terms and probably words that are a little different because they were high school kids back in the 90s, said, I found the answer and you need it. And when Mo heard the gospel and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, Mo's world was turned upside down. Mo's had a faithful, you know, a, a long career in the NFL. He's chaplain of the Jaguars. Now Larry, by the way, went to the NFL as well. I guess becoming a Christian didn't make him a wimp. And he's one of the coaches at the Tampa Bay Bucks now. I thought of that. I thought, Larry, all he, all he did was invite someone to church with him and cared enough to stay with him and to talk to him and turned his world upside down. I don't know who invited you to Christ. I don't know who shared Jesus with you. I hope it was your parents or a family member. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a coworker. Maybe it was just me because now is the first time you've ever heard this. But listen, when we try to do our life on our own, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly 
that we need help. I needed someone to turn my world upside down. You needed someone to turn your world upside down. And you are that person that others need to help them have their world turned right side up. The saved person is saved as a result of having one's world up, turned upside down and the gospel infecting them. And that's how you change the world. Let me, let me tell you what happened in, in, in all those world changers trips. I'll never forget the trips. There was a lot of great memories there. A lot of challenging times. A lot of days on that roof. I'm like, why are we doing this? But we re-roofed homes in all those different cities and did work on all those different homes. And, and let me just say that, that I think one of them was back at the end, uh, late 90s, like 96 or something was the, one of the first ones. I remember roofing that house in Shreveport, Louisiana. Let me tell you, I promise you this. When we left Shreveport, they had a great roof on the house. But now it's 2021, and I have no idea, one, if that individual still lives in that house, two, if that house still exists. And if that house still exists, I promise you this, if they haven't had a new roof put on since then, they need one now, right? So here's the truth. Temporal stuff like that can change a person's world for a season. But the conversations in the front yard about the gospel of Jesus Christ change those individuals' lives for eternity. And they can trade in old shingles because the scripture says they have a room waiting for them in the Father's house. I pray you do too. And I pray that if you don't, that you'll get that figured out today. That all you got to do is surrender Confess your sin to the Lord. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And be like those that Paul and Silas talked to in those synagogues that said, we believe. Be like those Greeks that were in the city that said, we're in. And all of a sudden, lost people became saved people and community people became family members. That's my prayer for you, for those watching online, and for those that aren't here today but need this message. Do you know anybody today that needs to hear that God loves them? Do you know anybody like that? Do you know who's not going to tell them? Me. Because I probably don't know them. But you do. So go turn the world upside down. And let's do it together. And I think we'll see things happen that we can't even imagine. I'm going to close the service with a prayer, and then I'm going to have Dave Paxson come up and share with us for just a moment. And if you have a decision that you want to share with me or one of our pastors at the end of the service, I know it's a little bit of an awkward shift, but at the end of the service, I'll be down front. You can also do this online. You can email me. You can do that through your website there or through our website, opfirst.org or firstfam.org. Either one of those will get you there. You can email the church. I get those emails, so I'll see them. You can click the connection card. I'll get that. You can fill out one of those yellow cards in the room. Come and hand it to me. If you want to set up a time to talk later, we can. But I promise you, we don't want to delay a decision to follow Jesus. You want to do that today. Today's the day. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Father, that we don't have to be that creative and we don't have to come up with new ways to sell you. That you don't necessarily need us, but we certainly need you. And while we don't have to be creative, Lord, that doesn't eliminate the fact that we can be. And we don't have to be eloquent of speech. That doesn't necessarily say we need to, to not talk. And because we don't have to be extroverts, Lord, help us to remember sometimes we have to speak the word. And in those moments of discomfort and, and, and awkwardness, Lord, give us the, the confidence necessary as we not, don't rest in our own abilities, but we rest in yours. 
I thank you, Father, for putting a church in Orange Park 100 years ago so the world can be changed for you. And I pray for the next 100 years we'll keep changing the world. That we'll be faithful. That we'll not be silent. And that our walk will match our talk. For your glory and yours alone, I pray in Jesus' name. Dave Paxton serves and has served here for about nine years or a little over as our generation's pastor. I'm going to turn this mic on right here on the pulpit for Dave. So if you have that one ready and make sure that one goes through the streaming as well. May have to make a connection. All right. I have been on many of those World Changers mission projects. I was on the very first one. I have led some. I've, I've been the camp pastor for some. And I'm telling you, they are indeed world changing, especially for those who attend and uh, this is, I want to thank you, church, for your patience in trying to get to your Sunday school class today. For those that were dislodged and, mis and displaced um, as we work on repairing some things in our buildings, uh, Sherry Barbaro was making the signs that I was running around placing, and she says, what do you want to say on them? And at one point I said, just say, you can't get there from here. <laughs> that will work. Uh, Following a message like that, I feel like this is a, almost disrespectful to the message, but uh, uh, let me share this with you anyway. In uh, 2012, after ending a tenure at a large staff outside of Nashville, I was traveling as an itinerant speaker, and God led me in a very clear way to come and serve with you here at First Baptist Church of Orange Park. I've taught young youth pastors over the years in conferences and in one-on-one -on -one meetings that you are called as much to a pastor as you are to a church. And that was indeed true as I was also called to come alongside our pastor and serve with him. And what a precious time that has been. Three years ago, I shared with our pastor that I was going to retire in the next couple of months. He informed me in very strongly in so many words that I was not going to do that. So I didn't. Uh, and I'm glad that I didn't because the last three years, though had challenging, have been rich at the same time. But now after 49 years of ministry, it's, it's time for me to retire from full-time ministry. The timing is not good. The timing is terrible. Having just lost another staff member a month ago and I inherited most of his duties. But God knew this was coming and he's, all, he's already prepared our church for next steps. We don't know what those are. I sure wish you'd share them with us, but trust his providence and faithfulness. Please pray for your pastor and staff. Offer help. Serve the church and one another. Step up and become a servant and not a consumer. Let me say that again. Step up and serve and not just be a consumer. I feel led in this next season of ministry to provide pulpit supply in area churches and champion struggling pastors. I've been preaching once a month in, at the, to the English-speaking students at the Vietnamese Christian Church on the west side, and I will continue to do so. In fact, my last Sunday here uh, will be the last Sunday in August, and at the 1045 service, I will be there preaching to them. Uh, and I'm Believe it or not, I am booked next summer for a, preaching a youth camp in Utah. I don't know anybody my age who's still preaching youth camps, but I'm booked for one. Sharon and I are not leaving First Baptist Church. Some of you going, oh man. 
In fact, I would like to think that as I travel and preach that I'm doing that as an extension of the ministry here and that you're sending me more than I'm just going. Uh, we have developed some close friendships and have no desire to move anywhere else. And uh, when I'm not speaking somewhere else, I will be here giving my tithe and serving at my church. I'll probably show up in preschool or children and go, where do you need me today? Uh, I've promised some of our members and friends that I would continue to serve them in a ministry relationship as long as needed, but will do so under the authority of our pastor and church. But my tenure as an official, in official capacity here will end at the end of this month. I have requested not to be provided a reception of any kind. We did one for, uh, our, for Stanley Puckett, but he had been here 20 years. I've just been here nine. Uh, and I think you ought, to re you ought to recognize 20 years. Uh, I will continue to see you in the days ahead. In days ahead. Anything that you would have said to me in a reception, you can say to me in the hallway. Uh, and if I could leave you with anything, it would be this. Parents, disciple your children. Grandparents, leave a legacy of faith to your grandchildren. Teach them in such a way that they know more about Jesus because of you. I love you. I thank you, and I share those words with you, not because I'm a paid staff member, but because that was God's plan A, and there was no plan B. Thank you, and I love you. Twenty years service, Stanley Puckett received donuts. We'll be giving Dave donut holes <laughs> for nine years. And as I said earlier, I said we're not going to have a reception for Dave, but we will have one for Sharon, and you may be invited. So, <laughs> let me just say, church, it, it is a. I don't know if it's a rarity, I just don't see it as much, but to have two men of God who are ordained pastors have served so well for so long, Stanley Puckett and Dave Paxson, to, to actually hit retirement at the same year, well, that, that doesn't happen all the time, but neither does it happen where both of them say, you know what, this is my church, I'm going to remain faithful and stay here, unless, until God maybe puts me elsewhere, but to have that opportunity to stay uh, is, says much about you as a church and much about these men of God. And I don't want to discount that. That is not always how it works. Uh, people are now asking, David, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not planning on retiring, but uh, we're praying for God's leadership in the days ahead. And I believe our history is, is rich, but we have some great days ahead we've yet to see. And I'm looking forward to those. Let me pray with you. We'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for who you are and for who you allow us to be in you. Thank you for your church. Thank you for these men who have served faithfully and will continue to serve. For we all know that retirement is a misnomer when it comes to faithful service to you. As they will continue to serve you faithfully as their ordination remains intact and their pastoral gifts remain. May we send more out to serve you in such a way. Church members, lay people, serving you in the workforce, in the community, in their families. Father, we are thankful that we are family. 
And the names of those mentioned earlier who have lost loved ones, we add to that the Walker family and the Knight family and many others. We, we ask you to comfort them as well. But in your comfort, we find your strength. Father, enable us to turn the world upside down. 